Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back here with you today. I feel so bad for Christina. This is the first time I asked her to do the prayer, and then we give her a mic that doesn't even work, and she's never going to say yes again when I ask her to do anything. And I tested it before the gathering, too, so I don't know what the deal is, but uh, either way. Glad to be back here this morning. It's great to see all of your faces. Uh, I missed you while I was away. Uh, you guys want to see some pictures? Okay, a little, uh, little family vacation, uh, what do you call that, slideshow. Uh, so I'll just give you a couple highlights. Uh, the main thing was we went to Montana to visit Dina's parents who live out there. And this is us out uh, hiking in the wilderness on a bridge looking all wonderful. Um, at least we got the nice mountains behind us. We also did some kayaking. Um, Dina and I went on a hike together and climbed up to the top of this mountain where there was this lake that was up there. So this is, you know, like 5,500, 6,000 feet uh, up there, and there's a lake just at the top of a mountain. So that was really cool. Uh, This is the mountain that I climbed. I climbed this one by myself, which in retrospect, uh, it was thrilling and it was awful all at the same time. It was, uh, I climbed 4,000 linear feet uh, and back down in the same day. Uh, It was a nine-mile in-and-out hike, and uh, the trail was sort of overgrown, and I went early in the morning, so there was dew on everything, and by the time I got about a mile in, I could hear and feel squishing with every step because my hiking boots were completely soaked, and I got to the top, and it was miserable. It was absolutely miserable. It was windy, and it was cold, and I sat down to eat my lunch, and by the time I left, I couldn't feel my fingers, and I couldn't feel my toes because my toes were uh, like pieces of ice because they were wet. Uh, but the views at the top were pretty sweet. So uh, there was a, like an old like, tower up there where they used to check for forest fires and stuff. And uh, so it was, it was not fun on the way up or down. Uh, there were lots of aspects of that that weren't great, but uh, overall it was really awesome. Glad I did it. Uh, great time just to be out by myself. And I didn't get eaten by a bear, so praise God for that. Uh, no bears, no other elk or animals that were up there that I saw. I got a text message while I was on my way up there, and they said, have you seen any wildlife yet? And I said, thankfully, no. Just a couple birds and a squirrel is really all I saw. So that was awesome. No other people, because no one else was dumb enough to do this on the same day as me. Uh, but I survived, so here I am. Uh, also, one of the things we did during that month was we redid our kitchen. Here's a before picture. And uh, if you want to see the after, you got to come back next week because I don't have an after picture. Um, we're having our countertops put in, Lord willing, tomorrow. So that's why. I'm not going to give you a picture of our... We tore the countertops out of our old kitchen, put them outside. When the new cabinets went in, we took the other ones and put them back on top. I'm not giving you a picture of that. So come back next week and you get to see a picture of our renewed, refreshed kitchen. So it was a wonderful uh, time away, some really good... Times of refreshing, also some backbreaking hard labor and some very difficult climbing up mountains. But overall, it was wonderful. So thank you again for uh, giving me the freedom and the privilege to be able to do things like that. And uh, I'm glad to be back here with my church family today. Uh, I missed you guys, so glad to be here. Uh, now until fall kickoff, we are in the book of Psalms. And as Christina mentioned a few moments ago, uh, we're going to be taking the same psalm every Sunday. And we're going to be praying through it as well as teaching through it preaching through it. So I think this is a, uh, such a valuable gift to be able to hear the same psalm both taught and prayed through every Sunday. And so I'm really excited uh, to go through this series with you together. 
If you're familiar with the book of Psalms, you know that they come in many different shapes and sizes. You know that uh, they cover the entire spectrum of human emotion, and no matter what you're facing in life, whether things are going well and you feel like the wind is at your back, or your life is seemingly falling apart, the seams are bursting, the tires are falling off, you're facing distress or anxiety or doubts or fears or frustration or suffering, no matter what we face, you can always find a psalm that makes it feel like someone has been reading your mail, as it were. The psalms have such a beautiful and uh, just amazing way of connecting with us in any and every kind of circumstance. Some of the psalms that we read are psalms uh, that are characterized by their hope and encouragement. So for example, Psalm 23, which is a psalm many of you are familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And there's also psalms like Psalm 30, verses one through three, which says, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me up out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. So there's all these psalms that are filled with hope and filled with encouragement. And then there are psalms like Psalm 50 that you heard read this morning that have a slightly different vibe to them where we read in verse 22, consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. This is not one of those psalms that you would run to or seek out if you are having a tough day. <laughs> okay, you're feeling a little bit discouraged, you need a little bit of a pick-me-up, you do not go to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, what you see here, uh, if you weren't able to pick up on this as Christina read this, this is a psalm in which God brings his people to court. God, who is the judge, sends a subpoena to his people and summons them to court and brings some very serious allegations and accusations against his people. And he calls heaven and he calls earth, he calls the entire cosmos to be witnesses against his people. And this is, this is actually kind of a frightening scene if we slow down and just observe what we see in this psalm. It's frightening. Again, this is not exactly what we'd call a feel-good psalm, but as we're going to see here this morning, this, like every other psalm, is still filled with hope and good news. And so we're going to see that here today. God is bringing these accusations against his people in Psalm 50 because there were two lies that the people were believing in their worship. And so God uh, speaks to them and brings these accusations against them to correct these lies that they are believing. And in believing these lies, their worship of God had been distorted. It had been twisted. It was not what it was supposed to be. And so God brings these accusations in hopes of restoring his people. And so we're going to look this morning as we see this text, we're going to look at two lies and an invitation because it's not just accusation, it's, just, it's not just the lies we see in the passage, we see two lies and an invitation. So let's look first at the first invitation, or the first uh, lie, rather. What we see here is the first lie that the people were believing, which is why God brought these accusations against them, was this, in my worship, I'm doing God a favor. In my worship practices, 
when I bring offerings, when I bring sacrifices to God, I'm doing God a favor. I'm bringing God something that God does not already possess. So listen to how he brings these accusations in verse 7. He says, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. So he's not bringing accusations against the people for the uh, frequency of their offerings, for the frequency of their sacrifices, because they are regularly, as they have been instructed to do, they are regularly bringing sacrifices and offerings to God. So he's not uh, bringing accusations to them because of the frequency of their offerings. He's bringing these accusations against them because of the attitude with which they were bringing them because of the beliefs that they had as they brought these sacrifices. So we see those beliefs that God is correcting in verse nine. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pen, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? It's really important for us to know that in the ancient world, this is how everybody viewed sacrifices. There would be a group of people. They would have uh, sort of local or regional or family gods. And they would offer sacrifices to those gods. And they would give sacrifices of food or drink. And it was believed by the people that they were nourishing the gods by bringing those sacrifices, by bringing those offerings. In other words, underneath the practice of their bringing sacrifices was the belief that the gods are lacking something and I am here to provide for the gods what they need. There's something that the gods lack and therefore the gods need me to bring these offerings, to bring these sacrifices to them. And this is the lie that they had begun to believe. As God's people had been coming to God in worship, they had been assimilating the beliefs of their religious neighbors that God really needs me to offer praise and worship. He needs these sacrifices. And God makes very clear that's not true at all. Notice how he says, every animal of the forest is mine. The insects of the field are mine. The world is mine. Everything belongs to me. So there is nothing you could bring me that I do not already possess. I do not need your sacrifices. And this is the lie that they had begun to believe. In my worship, I'm doing God a favor. God needs me to bring him sacrifices. And I think it's tempting for us. It's easy for us to fall into the same trap. Now, none of us would probably say that out loud. But I think subtly we can begin to believe the lie that God needs my worship. That God needs me. When I come to church and when I sing songs of worship to God, God needs what I can provide for him. When I uh, pray to him and I adore him and I worship him, God needs that. There's something that God uh, benefits from in my worship. You know, uh, God would maybe be sad or lonely if I didn't come to church on Sundays. God would be sad or lonely if I didn't sing along to Christian radio in the car. We can subtly believe the lie that God needs us. And what God reminds his people of here is, I do not need your sacrifices. I do not need your worship. And this is actually the good news of this passage. 
God does not need you. God does not need me. God does not need us for anything. God is sufficient. He is satisfied within himself. He does not need us to come and to present offerings to him. And again, the nations that were surrounding the people of Israel, here's what they believed. They believed uh, that they, they approached sacrifices as a gift for the gods. Okay, there's, there's these needs that the gods have and I'm gonna offer my sacrifices and gonna benefit the gods. And so they viewed their sacrifices as a gift that they gave to the gods. The exact opposite is the way that the Bible primarily talks about sacrifices. Sacrifices that we read about are not primarily, first and foremost, a gift that we give to God, as if God is benefiting. No, sacrifices are a gift given to us by God. Remember this, that because we have been defiled by sin, because we have been corrupted by sin, because there is the poison of sin that lives inside of every single human heart, because of that, we are unable to stand in the presence of a holy God. We would be consumed by his justice. We would be consumed by his judgment, by his holiness, by his perfection, if we who are unholy came into the presence of God. And yet God mercifully In his mercy and his grace, God made a way for us to be in his presence. And part of the way that he made for us to be in his presence, the provision he made was by giving us sacrifices, giving the people, his old covenant people, giving them sacrifices that they could come and they could offer, which would cleanse them from their sin, which would uh, restore their relationship with God. So the sacrifices that the people give in the Old Testament that we read about are not first and foremost gifts that the people give to God. Sacrifices are given to God's people as a gift for them that makes them able to be in the presence of God without being consumed by his holiness. So this is the complete opposite of the way that the nations around Israel were practicing and were worshiping. And friends, the most wonderfully freeing thing that you can know and believe today is that God does not need you. God does not need you, and he has still set his affection on you. God does not need you, and he still loves you. God does not need you, and yet he has pursued you and has made a way for you to be in his presence that came at great cost to him, not to us. God does not need you, and the most wonderfully freeing thing you can know and believe today is exactly that. God does not need me, and yet God still loves me. God did not have to save us. God was not obligated to make a way of deliverance or salvation for us when we had ruined our lives. God was not obligated to do that. And yet, out of the overflow of his mercy, out of the overflow of his compassion, God has made a way for us to once again be in his presence. And so this is the first lie that we see the people believing in their worship is that in my worship, I'm doing God a favor. I'm I'm giving something to God that God needs. He wouldn't be the same without me. That's the first lie. The second lie that we see the people believing, which is why God brings these accusations against them, is this. Spiritual compliance makes me right with God. Spiritual compliance alone makes me right with God. Listen to what God says in verse 16. What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction 
and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lots with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. So this is what's sort of being painted for us in this psalm, is that you have the people of God who were doing all of the right things. They're offering sacrifices as they ought to be offering sacrifices, and yet they were doing so believing the lie that God needed what they brought. Then in the second part of the psalm, we see that they are not only doing all the right things, they're saying all of the right things. You see that they are taking, they're reciting God's laws, they're taking his covenant on their lips. But then their lives don't match what they profess. We see him saying, you take my covenant on your lips, you recite my laws, which is likely a reference to the Ten Commandments. And then in what follows, God says what they are doing. He mentions stealing and adultery and uh, false testimony and all these things that are breaking of the Ten Commandments. So they are reciting those Ten Commandments on their lips, and then they're living a completely different life that doesn't match up with what they profess to believe. So it's like, it's as if there's two arenas in their lives. There's a spiritual arena over here, and they're doing all the right things, they're saying all the right things, they're following all the right religious practices, they're going through all the right religious rituals, they're doing all the right things, they're saying all the right things, They're professing right doctrine. They're professing, they believe all the right things. They're doing all the right things. And then over here, their lives don't match that profession at all. And they are convinced that living that life that is divided, they're convinced, I'm okay with God. They're convinced they're okay with God because he's been silent. So listen to verse 21. God says, when you did these things, that is when you broke all these commandments, When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. In other words, they have mistaken the silence of God for his approval. They've mistaken the patience of God for his approval. They've mistaken the passive judgment of God that he would hand his people over, that they would say, I want to live this way, and he would say, fine, have what you want. They've mistaken the passive judgment of God for his approval. And they're saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing all the right things, and I'm saying all the right things, and I'm living this way, and the hammer hasn't dropped yet, so everything must be pretty much okay. And they've believed the lie that spiritual compliance alone is what makes them right with God. And we too, friends, are tempted to believe that spiritual compliance is what makes us right with God. That if I'm at church every Sunday, that if I give if I serve, if I do all the right things, if I profess all the right beliefs, if I memorize portions of scripture, if I have my quiet time every day, if I even uh, memorize or recite portions of historic church creeds, if I do all these things, that must mean I'm okay with God, right? And the psalm would say, not so fast. It's not that simple. Because what this shows us is that it's possible to do and say all of the right things and still have a heart that is far from God. 
So they're believing the lie that spiritual compliance alone is what makes me right with God. And friends, God is not after spiritual compliance. Do you know that? God is not after spiritual compliance. You know, as a, as a parent, I care far more about my children growing up to be people of wisdom and character and virtue than I do just compliance. If you have kids, I think you, you, you probably understand this. Even if you don't have kids, you can, you can understand this, right? As a parent, you can get big, you can get loud, you can get angry, you can do all kinds of things to manipulate, to intimidate, to force your children into doing the things you want them to do, and that doesn't make them people of wisdom and character and virtue. And in the process, it'll destroy your relationship with them. In the same exact way, God does not care about mere spiritual compliance. Of course God cares what we do. Of course God cares about our behavior. And yet God is after far more than just spiritual compliance. Remember, he does not need our sacrifices. He does not need our worship. He does not need us to recite his laws or profess to be his covenant people. God doesn't need that from us. So what we know is that God does not want compliance. What God wants is us. God does not want mere spiritual compliance from us that we just do and say all the right things. He wants us. You see, for these people who are described in Psalm 50, obedience was not missing from their worship. Relationship was. They were not being accused of not doing the things or saying the things that they ought to be doing and ought to be saying. They were being accused of doing all those things in a wrong way, with the wrong motives, for the wrong reasons, and that's what they're being accused of. Obedience was not missing from their worship. Relationship was. And so this psalm not only lays out for us these two lies about worship, it also lays out for us an invitation and this is the invitation of Psalm 50, is that God does not want just mere spiritual compliance. God wants us. And so the invitation is to a life of communion with God. Now, it may not seem like it at first. When you first read this psalm, uh, it's pretty heavy on, it, it feels pretty heavy in the, in the judgment sort of arena, right? Uh, it, it feels heavy, it feels sort of scary to read this. And that's certainly part of it. And yet there's another aspect of this psalm that we have to recognize. God does not want to bring judgment on his people. God's desire is to save, which is why we have this psalm in the first place. God is bringing these accusations against them, not saying, okay, you had your chance. Now here comes the judgment. He brings these accusations against them in hopes that they would repent from the way that they've been living in hopes that they would turn away from those lies that they had been believing, and in hopes that they would enter into a kind of relationship with him that he desires to have with them. So God doesn't speak these words of judgment in this psalm in order to crush his people, but in order to make a way for them to be saved. God's desire is not simply to bring judgment, but to save them, to correct these sort of distorted and twisted uh, views and practices of worship that they had. 
And so God's desire is to invite his people into a life of communion. And the life of communion that we're invited to is we're invited into uh, to stand before God in reverent fear. It's impossible to read the opening verses of this psalm and not be sort of just unsettled by what you see. In the first verses of the psalm, we see so clearly God is creator. God owns everything. God owns us. He owns me. I belong to him, which means I owe him everything. God is creator and sustainer of all things. God is also our judge. It matters how we live. God cares about our behavior. He's our creator. He's our judge. And this is an invitation to stand before him in reverent fear. It's an invitation to recognize the gravity and the significance and the weightiness of his holiness and to recognize the gravity of our unholiness, the sin and the idolatry that lurks inside of every single one of us and to see that 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 makes it impossible for us to be in the presence of God. And yet God is our creator, he's our judge, he's holy, and yet he invites us to come into his presence. And God makes a way for us to be able to come into his presence. But this is an invitation to stand before him in reverent fear, to take him seriously. The psalm is also an invitation to recognize his generosity in all things. Two times in here, verse 14 and verse 23. Verse 14 says, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Verse 23, those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me. A thank offering, we'll learn more about this when we do our series in Leviticus. Okay, every week I say that, there's like three more of you that actually cheer. So be careful what you wish for. Uh, The thank offering was an offering that was given to God that was a response to the blessing and the abundance and the generosity of God that he poured out on you. So you, you see the harvest, you see the crops, you see the abundance that God has provided for you and you take a portion of that and you give it back to God and you say, God, I see everything that you've provided for me. I see everything that you've done for me. I'm going to give a portion of this back to you as an act of generosity, an act of worship to you in gratitude for the ways that you have been generous to me. And so that's what a thank offering is. It was not an offering to cover sin. It was a way to respond to the blessing and the generosity of God. And so this is what God wants for us. He wants us to be people whose hearts are overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness for the ways that he's provided for us. He wants us to be the kind of people who see his generosity and his abundance in everything around us, in the created world around us, in our own personal relationships and spheres of influence and in every place where we go. God wants us to be able to see all the ways that he has been generous and respond to him with thankfulness. So it's an invitation to stand before him in reverent fear, to recognize his generosity in all things, and to experientially know him as deliverer. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you will honor me. So what God is saying is I want you to remember the kind of God I am. That I love to hear the cries of the afflicted. 
that those who are in the day of trouble, who are suffering, who are hurting, I love to hear the cries of those who are in desperate situations and provide deliverance. I love to do that. And so I want you to be the kind of people whose first impulse, when you step into the day of trouble, I want it to be your first impulse that you cry out to me knowing what kind of God I am, that I'm filled with mercy and that I'm filled with love for you and that I desire to deliver you. So this is what God is calling us into, an invitation to a life of communion with him, which means standing in reverent fear of him, recognizing his generosity in all things and experientially knowing him as deliverer. Now, it's important that we look at this passage and we see all of the accusations, okay? That's, that's a legitimate part of this text that we can't just blow past. But if all we focus on is just the accusations, we will be crushed by them. We will stand before a God who is a holy judge and we will have nothing. And so we see that this is not just accusation. This psalm is filled with an invitation. We must see those accusations and take them seriously and we must also uh, see those invitations and not just the accusations. This life of communion with God is possible because God has made himself accessible to us. God has made himself accessible to us by sending God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human flesh and to live life in our world. To identify with us in the brokenness of our humanity, except he was without sin. He experienced life in our broken world. And we're told in the New Testament that Jesus has been given by God all authority to judge. And that Jesus is the one before whom every single person will stand one day and give an account of their lives. Jesus is judge, and, and the picture we see in this psalm, the, the, the scariness of this, I can only imagine doesn't come anywhere close to describing the horror of standing before God as judge. In the same way that, you know, we would say that all the, the images of heaven are just, you know, the closest thing human language to get to describing how good it is, the same thing is true in the opposite that the scariest picture of sitting under the justice or the judgment of God doesn't, do, it doesn't even come close to describing what it really is. And so Jesus is our judge, and we will stand before him one day. And Jesus also took on human flesh and went to the cross and suffered and died for us as our sacrifice. He gave his life in place of ours. He was our sacrifice, and it was his sacrifice that was what brought deliverance for us. The sacrifice of Jesus giving his life in place of ours is what released us from the power of sin, from the weight of sin, is what released us from, the, uh, from sitting underneath the justice and the judgment of God. Jesus is the one who is our judge, who gave himself for us, who sat himself underneath the judgment and the justice of God so that we wouldn't. And Jesus is the one who is the clearest expression of the generosity of God. And so everything that we see in the psalm here that's an invitation to life in communion with God, to take his holiness seriously, yes, and to enter into right relationship with him, to experience communion with him, 
everything that the psalm points us towards in experiencing communion with God is really pointing us ultimately towards experiencing life with Jesus, towards experiencing life and communion with him. And one of the ways that we demonstrate and we practice that, we step into relationship with Jesus, we step into communion with him, is we come to the communion table every Sunday. And it's a demonstration of our faith in Jesus. It's a demonstration of us saying, yes, I believe Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again and ascended for me. I believe that he did that for me. So it's a declaration of our belief. It's also, it also proclaims to us the message of God's love for us. It's a demonstration, not only of how much we love and trust Jesus, but how much God loves us. And so we get to come forward every single Sunday and receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and experience communion with him, experience relationship with him. And so maybe you're here today and this is uh, something that you've done over and over and over and over and over again. This is an invitation to come forward and to experience it in fresh ways. And this is an opportunity for us to, as we come to the table, to examine ourselves. To ask ourselves, in what ways may it be true of me that I believe and I do all of the right things and I'm trusting in that to be the source of my relationship with God? In what ways do I subtly believe the lie that God needs my worship? You know, God's really benefited by me showing up on Sunday and praising him. In what ways do we believe the lie? That if I just do and say all the right things, that has to mean I'm okay with God. In what ways have we prioritized obedience over relationship? And so it's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves. A time to confess those things where we see those cropping up. It's a time for us to ask God, please don't let me ever become that kind of person who does and says all the right things who has a heart far from you. It's an opportunity for us to experience communion with Jesus. And so I invite you, whether this is the 500th time you've done this or whether this is maybe the first time you've done this, you can experience, you can trust and experience communion with Jesus today. And so I invite you into that. As we come to the communion table, I'm going to uh, leave some space for silent reflection and confession. merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds, both by the things that we have done as well as the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, as we see the picture of you as our creator and judge in the psalm. Uh, we come before you and we, we desire to experience your mercy in fresh ways. 
Lord, we recognize the significance, the magnitude of the brokenness and the idolatry that exists inside of our hearts, and we ask that you would be merciful to us. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us see ways that we have maybe been believing the lies that we see in Psalm 50. And Lord, we pray that you would protect us as individuals, as a church family, keep us vigilant, protect us from ever slipping into these kind of lies. We pray that by your spirit you would be near to us. We pray that you would continue to draw us closer into relationship with your son Jesus. And God, we desire that our lives would never be characterized by cold, lifeless, spiritual activity. But that we would be people whose lives are characterized by loving union and communion and relationship with you. So forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have not prioritized that. Forgive us for the ways that we have not experienced that or sought after that. And we beg your mercy. We pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.